podcast is brought to you by New Hope Baptist Church. For more information, visit the website newhope.net.au or follow us on social media. Well, good morning to those of you online and those here this morning. It's a privilege to share around God's Word. We're going to read from the Gospel of Luke. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to get them out. We're in Luke chapter 19, and we're going to be starting at verse 28. Luke 19, verse 28. After he, meaning Jesus, had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem And when he had come near Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that's never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Just say this, The Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, well, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, order your disciples to stop. And he answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. As he came near the city, he wept over it, saying, if you, even you, had only recognised on this day the things that made for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the day will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognise the time of your visitation from God. May God bless this word to us this morning. It's like those viral clips that go around social media of flash mobs. Have you seen them? There are people sitting in food courts at at various kind of shopping centres and suddenly they throw down their sushi and stand up and spontaneously start singing Ode to Joy. Suddenly a whole bunch of pilgrims and disciples are walking along a road, a road where Jesus is on a small donkey and spontaneously they burst into this extraordinary song of praise. It's a raucous street party moving towards Jerusalem, just like in those cheesy movie scenes where people throw down their garden hoses or stop washing their cars and join the passing parade. And Jesus seems pretty pumped too. I mean, after the Pharisees challenge him, Jesus, and you know, trying to shut the whole thing down, Jesus says, no way, guys. If you stop these people from shouting, even the rocks are going to cry out. 
And at this point, all of this commotion isn't to demonstrate that Jesus is a really well-liked and kind of popular guy or that the disciples have finally got their act together and realised that an outdoor musical number would be the best way to get the word out about Jesus. As you know, this is a kind of clever street theatre that draws deeply on wonderful Jewish traditions to assert the royal identity of Jesus. All that stuff about the cult that had never been ridden, the laying down of the cloaks, the waving of the tree branches, the words the disciples shout, are all designed to send the message that this is a royal parade, that Jesus is king. Because you see, kings don't parade before they become king, do they? They parade after their coronation. Jesus isn't declaring his intention to take the crown. He's declaring he already has the crown. That every action that he has taken, every time that he has forgiven someone's sins or bought healing or fed thousands of people, every time he's taught on the street and in the synagogue, every time he's spoken a parable, that these weren't just a foretaste of the kingdom of God. This was the kingdom of God itself breaking out. This was the kingdom of God in operation, which is why they shout, blessed is the king. You see, this king, he's, he's right there. Sure, he's without the usual military guard or the fabulous robe or the golden chariot, but that's him the king who doesn't look like a king. He's beaten up sandals and his worn down tunic that have seen better, weight, better days. I know it kind of seems incredible, isn't it, that, that this of all people, this man riding on this little donkey is the king that the Israelite people had been longing and praying for for years and years. But then something happens, doesn't it? Something strange happens right after the very public jubilation of this parade. This private moment where Jesus loses it. He looks out over the city and he breaks down in tears, weeping over it, utterly broken hearted. When it comes to royalty, we live in an age and within a commonwealth where the absolute power of the throne is mostly being turned into a ceremonial situation with, frankly, nice hats and designer outfits. But to see a king weep is an utter historical aberration. I think it's probably fair to say that there are very few records that we have in the entirety of history of kings weeping. All in all, kings and queens don't grieve. That's because they don't really do failure, do they? Monarchs have stiff upper lips. They are the masters at putting on a happy face, adept at explaining that while you think something might look like defeat, actually it's really a victory. But Jesus, you know, he isn't your run-of-the-mill kind of a king. If he were after the fabulous parade... He would have retreated to a fabulous palace to have his back slapped by a group of sycophants and drunk fabulous champagne. 
But instead, after his so-called triumphal entry, Jesus doesn't even go to the pub for a pint with his mates. Jesus is alone and he is crying. Jesus is a weeping king. Jesus is a grieving king. And what he's grieving about is that as he looks out over the great city of Jerusalem, it is full, utterly jam-packed to the gills with people who have no idea what makes for peace. Jesus' lament, of course, is rooted in a very specific, concrete historical conflict between Rome and Jerusalem. Jesus is talking about the fall of Jerusalem. That's what he's describing when he says, indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. Jesus is talking about those times when God has used other nations, like the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire, to bring judgment on his people, Israel. And in this moment, in, in, in not very many years, God would again use another nation, the Roman Empire, to bring judgment on the people of Israel. And Jerusalem falls deeply and violently in the year 70. And this event has an extraordinary, profound effect on Jews and Christians, all of them that are to come. It's marked, of course, by the end of the Jewish rebellion against Rome, and it sets forth the destruction of the Second Temple and the Jewish diaspora as people flood out into the rest of the Roman Empire seeking to escape death and persecution. And while Jesus' lament is rooted in these very specific, concrete historical events, it also transcends these events. I wonder these 2,000 years later, how much progress you and I have made in recognising what makes for peace. Peace is one of those words that really just rolls off my ears. I mean, I hear it and I automatically think, yeah, peace, like, I know what that means. My earliest memories of someone crying out for peace are my frustrated and exhausted mother as she ran around our home looking after three young kids below school age, so deeply frustrated with us tearing ourselves, one another, and the house apart. She would say, oh my goodness, can I just have a minute of peace, please? And when I hear Jesus cry for peace, I think, sure, Jesus, I get it. You just want people to lay down their weapons and stop fighting. You want wars to end in places like Ukraine and Syria and Somalia and Myanmar. Sure, Jesus, I get it, you want peace. I mean, if only people could stop being so mean and start going to therapy and attending more anger management classes, like if only they could cultivate their empathy a little more and stop throwing stones at one another. Yeah, Jesus, I get it. I know that you want peace. I know you want me to slow down and be more present so that I can experience the wonder and the beauty of this life that you've given. Sure, Jesus, peace. I get it. But do I really know what makes for peace? Do I really know what Jesus is saying when he says you need to truly understand what makes for peace? Because I'm not sure. 
And what makes me unsure is that wanting nations to not be violent and wanting people to stop being judgmental and wanting for me to find more peace in the moment are all really, really good things. But I wonder, are they actually enough? I wonder if they can really speak to the profound depth of the need that we see in this world today. I recently heard my colleague, Nathan Nettleton, who's the pastor of South Yarra Baptist Church, say that the kind of peace that the world, uh, the world has is a false peace. It's a false peace because what we're really aiming at when we talk about peace is mostly stability. We mostly enjoy a false peace that's about stability. For those of us whose life situations mean that the status quo is pretty well mostly a comfortable place, we really want the kind of peace that enhances what we already have, one that preserves our privilege and doesn't cause us any inconvenience. I mean, it really is inconvenient to reckon with the reality that the things that we buy in the marketplace hide exploitative labour practices behind glossy marketing. It really is unpleasant to think about the thousands of Indigenous lives that were lost, of the massacres that happened throughout Australia to secure this land that we now enjoy. And it is uncomfortable to confront my own false assumptions and judgments about people who don't look like me and aren't like me. If by all the things that make for peace, Jesus is talking about all the ways that the peace that I enjoy is in fact propped up and held up on the backs of other people. If that's what he means when he says, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've not come to bring more of the false peace that you currently enjoy. I've come to bring an entirely different kind of peace, a peace that is true peace for everyone and lasts forever. Well, then I'm not sure I really know what makes for peace. And there are times when I'm not sure that I really want to know what makes for peace. Which is partly why I imagine Jesus is weeping. Because he knows that just like the crowd who so joyously shouts that he's an extraordinary king, I too am happy that Jesus is king. I'm delighted that Jesus is the Prince of Peace right up until the point that that starts really costing me. Right up to the point it begins to impact on my status quo, the one in which I am mostly comfortable the one in which I mostly benefit. In the first chapter of Luke's Gospel, Zechariah's prophetic word about Jesus ends with this. In God's mercy, he gives light to guide our feet into the way of peace. And here we are on Palm Sunday, at the beginning of the week in which Jesus will show us his way of peace. He will show us where this way of peace ultimately takes us. And his story shows that his way of peace ultimately takes us to our very end. Because Jesus' way of peace is, of course, the way of the cross. 
We are to take up our cross and follow Jesus. In order to gain our lives first, we've got to lose them. In order to gain true peace, first we must allow the stability of the false peace that we enjoy to die. As we stand at the verge of this holy week, this wonderful week that we need so desperately, I want to invite you to put yourself in the same place as the disciples, singing and shouting beside Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem on that tiny donkey. And as Easter approaches its climax, I want you to be expectant for the ministry of this King Jesus, who we have decided to follow, is approaching its climax, this ultimate moment where the kingdom that Jesus says he has longed to bring will be revealed. And it will be revealed at the table when Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. It will be revealed as he breaks bread and drinks wine with them, as he gives himself to them. It will be revealed as he prays in the garden and says to his father, not my will but yours be done. And it will be revealed when Jesus chooses to lay down his very life and as God raises him to new life. You see, Easter is about God's plan for God's reign to be established in full and forever when all things will be restored and renewed and the, pen, the prince of true peace will be enthroned. So that once again, everyone in the world may dwell and live hand in hand with God so that they might delight forever in God and in this extraordinary creation that we've been given and the wonder of our humanness. The promise of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is that when God becomes king, he isn't just going to remove the old guilt and cure all of our old disease. He will bring mercy and justice and he will judge the living and the dead so that the past may finally and fully become the past so that we might know the true peace that surpasses all of our understanding. So as Jesus stood there weeping, painting a picture of the decimation that is to come, he says these things will happen because Israel didn't recognise the time of their visitation from God, he says. They didn't recognise that God had come to them in Jesus. They couldn't see God standing right there before them in flesh. They were so closed off, so resistant to the saving intervention of God come to them in the person of Jesus. They couldn't see who was standing right before them. They were so blocked by their own familiar but false ways of peace that because of their own choices, they'd reached this point of no return and they were to suffer the consequences. My prayer is that on this side of Easter, that you and I who look back on that very first Easter would not make the same mistake, that we too 
would, would come to recognise our time of visitation from God. That in the gift of God's indwelling spirit, the Prince of Peace stands before us, dwells within us, longing to fill our hearts, to change our minds, to transform our lives into his way of peace. So it seems right this morning, as we begin this holiest of week, that we might enter into this time of communion with the Prince of Peace. So as the worship team comes and as, uh, as the Connect team passes around the elements, I just want to invite you to recognise the time of God's visitation with you this morning. That in this bread and in this cup, these physical reminders of Jesus' presence with you, these are the gifts that he longs to give to you, to put in your hand, to allow to enter your body this morning, to remind you that he is with you now and forever. And that in the midst of the chaos and the uncertainty that you're experiencing in various parts of your life and that we experience together in our world, there is an answer. There will be an end to the chaos. But it will be the ending that we really need, not the one in our own human strength we're reaching for. So as the stewards distribute the elements, I just invite you to sit here peaceably for a moment. As Lance said, it's gonna be a big week, but this is a moment to turn your heart and your mind towards God.